also host another podcast uh, called Charlie Charlie One with the Royal Marines Charity. And that's all about interviewing people. It's about getting interesting stories from members of the Royal Marines family. It's about promoting fundraising events. It's about pushing out any news, current affairs, you know, all the kind of moving and shaking that's gone in the Royal Marines world. And so far, I've interviewed two of my friends. And I thought, why not kill two birds with one stone? We've got the content. It's a great story. There's going to be many more great stories. Why not share them also with you guys, with Team No Limits? So that's what I'm going to do. Now, I uploaded the first one uh, to the Charlie Charlie One podcast about two weeks ago. And so now I am very pleased to let you know that I have uploaded it to this platform. And it's with a good friend of mine. I'm not going to say too much now. I've already ranted on enough in this intro. But the man's name is Lee Spencer, a.k.a. Frank Spencer. He's a former Royal Marine. He holds four Guinness World Records, like myself. He is an amputee and a Royal Marines veteran. So check it out. It's a long one. It's just over an hour long, I think. But I'm sure you're going to enjoy it. You're going to be inspired by it. Um, And I hope to bring you many, many, many more interviews uh, like this in the future. Enjoy. Welcome to the show, mate. Cheers. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. And I appreciate you giving up your time. No, uh, up here Because it's a special episode today because this is the first ever episode of the Charlie Charlie One podcast. And I couldn't think of anybody better to have on here, mate. So thank you very much for giving me time. I appreciate it. Flattered. <laughs> now, I just want to have a chat. Um, I'm sure many people listening to this have heard of you already and they know some of the things you do now but potentially not before, you know, your career and uh, prior to your accident, things you did serving, the actual accident itself, how that happened, and then some of the crazy things that you've done after. So I'd like to cover that with you. And obviously I want to start at the beginning. So let's take it back and tell us when it was you actually joined the Corps. When did you decide to do it and, and that journey you went on from there? Um. Well, I joined the Corps in 92, uh, 1992. Um, actually, I've got a, um, I, I suppose the way that came about is less than, uh, I suppose, typical, would be okay. the way I'd describe it. I, there was never any fault of joining any other arm of the, uh, the armed forces. You know, it was always, I always wanted to be a Royal Marine. And that really comes back to, I suppose, when I was about 13, mm-hmm. uh, 12, 13, the Falklands War was going on and, and the Royal Marines were prevalent in that. They were front and centre of everything that was happening, and especially in the media. Uh, but it goes back, bef- um, it, it sort of, it wasn't just uh, the Falklands. It was uh, the local British Legion where my dad drank. Now my dad was a, um, he wasn't in the forces. He, he was a merchant seaman for a bit. Um, and then he, he was a stiletto. So. Do you have a, a big? Do you have any military connection in your family? Um, no more than uh, my granddad. Um, my dad's dad was a uh, stoker in the in the navy in the war. Okay. And he was very much still involved with his oppos societies and kept in touch with everyone from his ship. And he sort of ran the local British Legion. Now, in this British Legion. Um, my dad, for some reason, even though he had no connection to the Royal Marines whatsoever, he sat on 
a table that was all old Royal Marines. And that struck me even back then as some, there was something different about the Royal Marines. Mm -hmm. no, none of the other cap badges um, would all sit together, you know. But the Royal Marines were, we are the Royal Marines. And they called their table the Royal Marines Mess Deck. <laughs> so I kind of grew up uh, from a very young age hearing all their stories from the Second World War. And some of them, um, subsequently, when you join the Marines and you and we all know of the kind of japes and escapades yeah. that our friends and lads have got up to. The, these guys were doing them back in the, time, yeah, back okay. in the day in the, in the Second World War. Um, so there was always something special about the Royal Marines that I recognised. Um, and I remember, you know, when you have a careers fair before you take your options at 13 in school. Oh, at Royal, school? Yeah, they had okay. a Royal Marine uh, recruiter there. I went up to him and says, you know, I want to be the Royal Marines. And he says, okay. He goes, uh, are you captain of the football team? I went, no. He says, cricket team? I went, no. Rugby team? He says, there's no rugby team. We didn't play rugby in my school. I went, are you in any of the teams? I was like, no. <laughs> and uh, he said, well, we're kind of really just looking for the um, the captains of the football teams. They're, oh, they're really? The, yeah, so I kind of left that conversation with a sense of, um, you know, Royal Marines kind of like superhuman you've got to be right and, and I'm not that person I, I'm uh, despite you know really trying at football mm -hmm. so, so I can't even say that I didn't like it you know and that's why I wasn't in the team I loved football I played football all my life just terrible you just weren't good at it <laughs> <laughs> and um, I'm, I'm an incredibly unsporty person or, or I was growing up and uh, I, I fell into a job that I really hated, mm -hmm. um, but it was a job. And uh, I kind of went and tried to join the Marines at 18. I didn't get past the uh, careers office interview. Okay. And uh, finally, I kind of uh, realized that if I carried on doing the job I was doing, I'd blink and then 10 years would have gone past. Yeah. And I kind of left kind of I left my job for what just I can't do this so I left without a job to go to and then um, started thinking about the Marines again I thought well, I'll give myself three months to get fit and then have one more last go at it and I did and got through the careers office got to the PRC and actually I scraped everything all the physical mm -hmm. tests I scraped them but I really felt that like I finally found something that I could be good at, and that was not giving in. Right. And, and that that's really uh, where my life changed. Mm -hmm. And loved, well, passed the PRC and then got into training. Um, 635 troop, joined up on the 2nd of March, 92. Um, and went all the way through training with her. And, and then went from there on, I, I sort of, I felt like I'd found my space, my mm -hmm. place in the universe, found what I was meant to do. Sense of belonging. Yeah, yeah. Do, do you yeah. think you said about scraping through things and, and never giving up? Do you think that was because you had no plan B? Um, no, I've, I've, I'm kind of. I know who I am, and I know mm -hmm. what I'm good at, and I'm not really good at things. I fail. Okay. Most things. I, f I think the only thing that I really. Uh, ever went through uh, first time was uh, was training. I 
mean, I, I, I was like a past a sniper selection in 4-2 and then subsequently failed the course. Okay. It was back in the day where you'd done the badge tests. So there was like a series of five tests mm -hmm. at the end and you had two goes of passing. If you didn't pass them at all, that was it. Mm -hmm. you, you failed them. So there was a couple of guys who, you know, really um, uh, like capable uh, soldiers. I wasn't one of them. I I scraped. I I'd failed nearly mm -hmm. all of the tests going through. But one of them, he it passed nearly everything, and then just messed up the one at the end. So okay. it kind of changed the way they done the. Uh, it was like two out of twelve passed uh, my sniper course. But on the back of that. I got in a sniper multiple in Northern Ireland and we were attached to a unit called JSG then, mm -hmm. um, which was uh, Op Sansom. Okay. Um, what's called Op Maximize. And that stuck with me and I ended up, because even though I failed a sniper's course, it got me um, in a sniper multiple, mm -hmm. which meant that we was working with a, uh, a unit that I'd never have heard of or mm -hmm. never had any connection with. But years, years later, that always stuck in my mind. I then applied to join that, and, and, that, and that's what I've done towards the end of my career. Op Sansom, I'm probably going to get this completely wrong. That was kind of the plain clothes, sneaky beaky, undercovery kind of stuff? Yeah, 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 it was. Um, it was uh, uh, the unit's called Defence Human Unit. It's, I think this is all out there now. Mm -hmm. You know, the internet, you do books about them. Um, and basically ran agents in Ireland mm -hmm. and subsequently that type of job went um, throughout the, the world now. Okay, so you did it Ireland and when you came back, what other deployments did you did you go on? Um, sort of, it was kind of in that time uh, in the, in the um, 90s of between kind of things at the Corridor and you had uh, Kosovo came up, mm -hmm. uh, four or five went I wasn't part of that. Uh, Sierra Leone sort of came up as well, but that was a very, very small deployment. Um, and it was mainly just exercises in Norway. And I got into um, uh, skiing in Norway. Okay. Again, it's an environment I loved. Um, I've done an MSI's course and then I've done an MST's course. Mm -hmm. So I was, you know, myself as a very, before I lost my leg, yeah. a very competent skier. Um, so I kind of, you know, it was in that main where you was going Ireland tours and Norway. Okay. And, and that seemed to be the bread and butter of the call before the world went mad when the uh, Twin Towers came down. Yeah, I remember it because uh, I was here. I was at CTC. I, I started training February 2001, passed out also as an original in October. So four weeks before we did was when 9-11 happened. And like you say, the world went crazy. So I'm assuming you were, were you involved in Jakana in 2010? Um, I was busy failing another course. <laughs> oh my god! Yeah. <laughs> it's not failure if you learn from it. Well, it's it's um, it's it's, it's actually uh, it, it's it's my mission to take failure into schools, and, and perhaps we'll talk about that. Later yeah, on. yeah. Um, but yeah, so I, I was um, uh, out in Cyprus with Forty Commander. I was in Charlie Company section commander there and we had just pulled up it was on ocean and we'd just come in to uh, uh, Cyprus and funny enough we were in the tiny room in the mess okay. uh, named after dedicated to the memory of tiny winter um, and it was with tiny he was a big part of that 
big character in Forty Commando, but a big part of that um, that whole deployment. And uh, we sat and watched on the news, mm-hmm. you know, everything unfolding then. And then um, I'd I'd uh, got on selection. It took me a couple of years. It was it was one of them where I I put in for it, and then the paperwork got lost. Yeah, yeah. before the days and, and finally got on selection. I think they put me back about a year, two years. Mm-hmm. And then um, uh, I had to get, because of me, I tried to get special dispensation <laughs> to go down, <laughs> uh, which ultimately. How old were you? I was 32. That's not too old, is it? Yeah, it, that was the cut off point. Oh, okay, right, uh, understood. It's changed now, mm-hmm. but it was 32, was mm-hmm. the cut off point. So I got a special dispensation because of my age. Um, when uh, and I had a conversation with my sergeant major uh, Charlie company called Ben Jackson and he was like right I've got you a flight back for mm-hmm. the selection he goes but you know what's, where we, what's potentially going to happen now mm-hmm. and um, I'd gone through the core as I said going through those training evolutions and mm-hmm. never you know apart from Northern Ireland um, you know it, it was the first time the first thing the core was really going to get involved in mm-hmm. get his teeth into uh, since the Falklands and I knew I was going to miss it because I couldn't put off selection mm-hmm. it was now or never because yeah. yeah. I had to get because of my age uh, so I had that conversation with say right the core I know what's going to happen it's mm-hmm. written down the core's going to go off and do this amazing thing and then um, I'm going to fail selection and that's more or less what happened except when uh, Forty came back from Jakarta, we started gearing up uh, to going into Iraq. So Tell I was it. actually uh, on Telic One. I was on the Vaida One. Was our call sign? Okay. The helicopter, the front, which was there's a lot of uh, uh, a lot of arguments over who was actually the first into. Yeah, <laughs> no, I was there, mate. I was on Telic One too. Yeah, uh, I, was, I was in Charlie Company, and we went in on the first night. So that was. You know, it was an experience. Yeah. How did, how did you find <coughs> Iraq? Um, hard work, really, really, really hard work. Did you really? Yeah. Yeah. It was. Um, every, I I lived my ethos for being a bootnik was only full can be cold and wet, mm-hmm. and I spent like you know exercises taking little bits of morale. Like I'll take a proper coffee maker. Yeah. Yeah. Know, and then you go to um, you know having these little luxuries and things mm-hmm. in there to just carry water and ammunition, and that was all you carried. And um, it was the the initial fighting phase, which lasted a couple of weeks or a week or so. And then there was that we, we lined up actually. I can remember the day vividly. We lined up to do an advanced contact to clear this area that um, had uh, Iraqi army positions in. And we got up and we started on HR, started moving forward and that was the day that the, um, the Iraqi army in the southern part around Basra just packed up and went home um, and uh, after that we settled into a um, next month or so, I think it probably was a just real hard patrolling mm-hmm. and um, uh, was trying to do a lot with not a lot of men. So it was, it was, we were stretching ourselves thin, physically. Okay. Whereabouts were fought? They, were up, well, they took the oil fruits, didn't they? Yeah, we went into a thing called the MMS, which was a manifold and maintenance station. That's what we captured. Mm-hmm. Um, and all of the oil in southern Iraq kind of just came to this one point. Mm-hmm. 
um, and then it was piped out okay. into uh, uh, into the Gulf, um, and it was if they, it was all rigged to blow, and if it had been blown, it would have been an environmental catastrophe as right. well as everything else involved with uh, that. So um, on the first night, on, on the <clears throat> on the uh, first uh, Iraq war, where they just bombed everything for like a good two, three weeks mm. before the land forces moved in. Um, this was slightly different. They captured as much of the infrastructure as they could before all of the um, uh, heavy machinery of war sort of rolled in. Mm. So we was part of that. I think there was a SEAL Team 6. Uh, SEAL Team 6, now Bin Laden, was SEAL Team 7 right. so, and if it's the other way around it was SEAL Team 6 that went in um, they sort of landed uh, and then turned off all the oil and they'd obviously you know, been practicing it again and again and then we came and landed and took the outer buildings of this manifold manifold meeting station in the mess okay. and then once we'd done that once they said yep yeah, clear once we got the last yep yeah, clear the last building that's where everybody else started rolling across their start lines okay so what was after Iraq what was next um, selection uh, I went did I go back on selection this is going to be between Telek and Herrick yeah right? yeah I can't remember no no uh, yeah after Iraq sorry I, I'd done selection twice mm -hmm. in the two goes and I was um, I was going to have a third go. Mm -hmm. I remember I've had a conversation with the um, uh, head of training, head of Tiwi, um, in Paul, and uh, he says, "Well, you know what happened?" I says, "Well, I just didn't cut it," which is the short answer. He says, "What do you mean you didn't cut it?" I says, "Well, I just didn't cut it. I gave it everything, but you know, I, it didn't work out for me." And um, he then said, "You know what?" Right and fair enough, and, uh, and I said it was like a flippant remark at the time, but I meant it. And I said, you know, it's because it's gone. Because I know if I could, if I could just get over the hills, mm -hmm. I know I'd pass. Because you know, I don't get fredders. I don't get fed up with things. I don't, mm -hmm. you know, when you're cold and wet, and right. miserable. There's always that one idiot who's still cracking jokes. Yeah, and yeah, yeah. That's me. Right. And he went, well, wait there a second. Walks out and he came back and he says, <clears throat> "What we're going to do? We're going to try and get you a third attempt to train as if you are, um, and uh, we've got a good relationship with Hayworth, so we should be able to get you on." And I trained and trained, um, and then Signal came out for the next selection, and I wasn't on it. And I rang them up. <laughs> and I spoke to uh, uh, the OC of Tiwi, which is a training mm -hmm. uh, part of the SBS. And he says, uh, he said, okay, uh, I go, he took my number and he said, I'll call you back, I'll find out what's happening. And he rang me back and he says, yeah, I had a conversation with him. It was a combination of you being rubbish and old. <laughs> wow. <laughs> he wow. said, well, he didn't use those exact words, but that's what he meant. He said, if it was, if it was a fact that just your age, yeah. we could have done something about it. If it was a fact that he came off quite early, we could have probably done something. Right, right. But the two combined. <laughs> gotcha. <laughs> I'd say it was quite gain. That's um, a morale smasher, eh? Well, it was because I it, I felt like I'd been training for years mm -hmm. and then it had gone. 
Yeah. And I had no focus after that, but it was immediately taken up by a rack. Um, and that obviously focused me again. Mm -hmm. So it was on the back of a rack. Kind of went for a period of being a bit lost, I suppose, in my career. So I didn't know what I wanted yeah. and I, I certainly didn't have a focus. Um, uh, I don't know if I'm a, a person who needs a focus, something to train for, a purpose. I don't know if I am, if that's inherently part of my character. But it certainly um, left me quite flat. Okay. Um, and I got drafted to the display team. Okay. Um, which was amazing. And I very nearly, I had an argument with the OSM at Stonehouse about it. And my exact words to him uh, were, <laughs> you know, mucking about around the country. I didn't use those that yeah. word, it was a profanity. I said, mucking around the country with a bouncy castle, it ain't me, sir. I'm a soldier. Right. <laughs> so again, um, there, was a, there was a lad in their defence who wanted to do it, and I didn't. So he said, send, uh, send his name's Louis, send Louis down. I know Louis. Yeah. I think that's where we first met at uh, Defence, wasn't it? Yeah, Probably yeah. in 2003 yeah. or four. Louis, Louis, Louis. Yeah, I know Louis. He said, so he sort of turned up with Louis. And this was in Norway, his office, and he went, no, you can't do it. He goes, you got to be, whoever we send down has got to be made up to acting sergeant, and he looks too young. So I was like, oh, so you're basically saying <laughs> that I can't, I've got to do something I don't want to do because I look old. You know, your age <laughs> is still working against you. Yeah, but actually, when I went, when um, I came down to uh, uh, Paul and he turned up first day, Scotty Mills was uh, part oh. of it, and it was all the lads from Forty, right? Then you know Charlie, a lot of them from Charlie Company and Albert Company. When I found out what we'd be doing, I was like, "This is going to be the best three months of my life," and it and it did turn out to be like that. Okay, hoofing Afghanistan. Multiple tours? Yeah, I've done three tours, but um, that uh, job I'd done in Ireland uh, for that unit, mm -hmm. that had always stuck with me. And um, I think uh, failing selection knocked my confidence quite badly, uh, which is unusual because you think I'd be quite good at failing things by then. <laughs> but I, uh, I put in for. Um, uh, special duties, I volunteered for special duties okay. and um, failed the first course mm -hmm. or part of the first course which everyone on my course did, it was about 116, 117 people started off with the selection mm -hmm. and then 22 of us actually got on the course and out of that 20, out of the, that original intake only three of us got the qualification and that was on our second go at the mm -hmm. course. So it's quite an intensive yeah, course. Sounds, yeah. um, so I'd done my three Afghans as part of that unit. Okay. And you survived Northern Ireland, Iraq, and three Afghans, unscathed, relatively unscathed? unscathed. Yeah, yeah, well, absolutely unscathed. So let's then talk about when you escaped, let's talk about the, the incident, where you, the accident, rather, where you were, where you were injured and Sustained life-changing injuries. Yeah, I was. Um, uh, I'd come literally to the end of my career, um, and I was looking at going outside. Uh, the job that I that I was doing, they were incredibly short of people to do it. So um, I always had the option of extending, mm -hmm. which is what I did. So just before Christmas leave, 
um, leading up to my 22 year point, I put in an extension, a three year extension, and I was going back to work after Christmas leave to start training up for a, an operational deployment in, he was in Africa. And um, that's when my life changed, yes. So it was, a, it was a really stormy, horrible night, um, a Sunday night, and uh, I actually got a flat tire in Devon, pulled over the side of the road and took a picture of me, uh, my van, been, I'd jacked it up and I was changing the tire myself. Mm -hmm. And I posted it on Facebook with the comment, well this journey couldn't get any worse. Oh no. <laughs> Absolutely true. A couple of hours later, uh, around midnight, um, on the M3, just before the M25 junction, yep. came across a car that had crashed into the central reservation. It literally just happened. It was There wasn't a lot of traffic on the road. It was empty. Um, and uh, it was a BMW 5 Series, it kind of straddling the um, fast lane and the middle lane. Right. But his bumper had gone, it was always smashed up. So I immediately pulled over. Uh, there was a guy who just pulled over just before me, he was on the phone. So I was like, are you on the phone to the uh, emergency services? He says, yeah. So I thought, well, job don't have to do. Um, and mate, it was like, is there anyone left in the car? And he says, I don't think so, but they're all over there. And he pointed, and, and about 10 metres back down the road was this group of people. They were, it was three Polish people, so it was a, a very heavily pregnant woman and two guys. Um, and checking them over, anyone who'd done Afghan, as you know, you get a very high uh, level of training in mm -hmm. first aid, so I would have counted myself as a competent first aider. Um, but I was checking them over, making sure they're all okay, and you've been thinking about um, uh, internal injuries or anything like that. And I thought, the, the only thing I can really do now is to walk up the uh, carriageway using my phone uh, to warn oncoming traffic. And as I turned, I heard a huge bang, um, and I felt I just a lot of noise and screaming, and I felt myself hit, and I could feel myself moving in space. And I must have about three or four minutes of thinking okay. um, that really could have only been a couple of seconds. And I kept telling myself, you've got to check yourself over, you've got to check yourself over. And I kind of came to a, 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 a kind of standstill, kneeling down. Um, so I couldn't see like, my right leg had, at that point had gone. Um, Completely off? Yeah, but I couldn't see it because when you're kneeling, you sort of go, your leg goes behind, behind you. you. Yeah, yeah. Except when I looked down, my left leg, if you can imagine, was pointing out, uh, going to the side oh, uh, completely. Yeah. And I looked at it and it was one of those things where you look, I had to look twice. Mm. So I had something not quite right with what I was seeing, but I can't quite put my finger on it. And then I looked and I went, oh yeah. Uh, realised then that I was badly injured and what I'd done I'd been knocked over the barrier into a grass verge on the other side of the uh, barrier on the um, hard shoulder so I kind of fell backwards down like this grass verge and crawled back under uh, the uh, metal barrier and that's when I saw safe, right? well I, I, it, it was I kind of fell backwards okay. so I crawled back onto the um, uh, in, onto the um, uh, hard shoulder of the motorway, mm -hmm. and that's when I noticed uh, my right leg had gone, and uh, I was bleeding to death essentially. What happened is another car, an Audi A6, had smashed into the BMW that had crashed mm -hmm. with such force 
that the engine block and gearbox complete came flying out and that's what hit me. And that's what took your leg off? Yeah. So you pull over, midnight, rainy, a car's crashed, straddled between the centre lane and the fast lane. Yeah. You pulled over to help and then ended up sustaining life-changing injuries yourself. Yeah. So talk us through, if you don't mind, the, the no, next, no, no. what happened, because from what I know of our friendship, from when we've spoken before and what I see online, you were bleeding out from your femor, uh, from Yeah, arm. yeah, I was, I was kind of, um, I, I, I knew, well, from experience mm -hmm. that, that we've both had, that I had between seven and 12 minutes to stop that bleed. Mm -hmm. um, and, it was I was I was difficult because I couldn't actually get to it myself. Right. Because I was you know, I was quite badly injured yeah. and it was a hard thing to get to. Um and almost immediately, um, you know, like a pickup truck if you ever break down mm -hmm. with the orange flashing lights. Yep. One of them pulled up right next to us, put on the big flashing lights so I felt secure. But the guy I was like, I need a tool that came now on my leg and the guy was really reluctant to um kind of he just kept saying, I can't go down there, I'll be sick. And I remember saying, right. right, you're going to be sick, but I'm going to die. Can you see the difference? Yeah. But he couldn't do it. There's it was it was nothing I could do. He kept saying, oh, the ambulance will be here in a minute, the ambulance will be here in a minute. And all the time, I could f I'm ticking off all of the classic symptoms of shock, and I know I'm bleeding to death, and mm -hmm. I'm ticking them off. And, and I, I promise you now, I'm, I'm not over-dramatising the actual situation but the only way or the best way I can describe it was I, I felt a hundred percent that I was on the edge and I was staring into the oblivion now I know that sounds overly dramatic but now you're talking to me I've been there yeah, myself but I, 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 agree. I, know, I always feel yeah. like um, people think that I'm over egging it for no. effect but it's the only way I can really describe accurately mm -hmm. how it felt then and it was at that point, really, um, I had my phone in my hand still, you know, right. so I was going to go down, walk down a carriageway and use the torch on my phone to yep. oncoming traffic. I still, I hadn't let go of it. Mm -hmm. And I, I'm, I'm a family man like yourself, uh, wife and two kids. And I considered making that phone call yeah. very briefly and I knew if I'd have made that call, that would have been an admission to the universe and to, to let it Rome. go and just yeah, mm -hmm. that this was a fight that I weren't going to win. Mm -hmm. And I and I never felt I felt if I'd have done that, I may not be here now. I know that it was it. I actually, I'd lost over half my body's blood. Mm -hmm. I was on the edge of where people die. In fact, people die when they lose as much blood as that. Yeah. Um, it, it was really down to being a bootnick really because physical condition stubbornness yeah <laughs> and, and stubbornness but actually physically yeah that I'm here now anyway mm -hmm. um, but if I'd have made that call then maybe I wouldn't I don't think I would be it was at that point when my uh, guardian angel I suppose yeah. and rather strange guys of a a large Rastafarian gentleman yeah. called Frank is coming down to see us the weekend. I remember, I remember when you spoke on stage from a Blesmer Awards event a couple of years back. Seems like a great guy. Yeah, he is. Yeah, yeah, he is. Yeah, it's a big part of my life now. So what did he do then? He stepped in and did yeah. what the other guy. Yeah, was. Like I said, he said 
can I help? I said, yeah, I need a tourniquet cane now. And he's whipped his belt off and we tried to get it as tight as we could. Couldn't get it that tight. Tight enough to stop the flow of blood anyway. Mm -hmm. So I got his daughter, uh, Zanelli, to stand and we fell apart. We so I'm laying down and she stuck her heel as hard as she could in, into my groin area. Okay. And you've got like a, the, the femoral artery is what supplies the whole of your leg mm -hmm. with blood. And by digging it and putting all her weight on it, she kind of stopped the flow. Gotcha. And that's that's why I'm here. You know, we waited. Frank says about half hour, I think it was about 20 minutes. But undoubtedly, I wouldn't be here. I would have, I would have bled out. I was, mm. I was a, maybe as little as two minutes, if that. From bleeding out yeah. anyway. And so you get to hospital, you know, a combination of what happened on the roadside and the medics and doctors save your life. You go through an intense rehab process, you get yourself better, get your independence back. You're obviously dealing with a lot of stuff mentally as well. You know, I know you were coming towards the end of your career, yeah, but this kind of put the final nail in the coffin, I'm guessing. Um, it kind of did, but I never. I I woke up in hospital and Jenny went, I'm here, yes, yep. lost my leg, but mm -hmm. I'm here. Um, and I think that maybe that sent me on the trajectory that if I'd have woken up and not realised what happened and yep. oh, what's happened, said, oh, you've lost your leg, oh, no, my career and everything. Mm -hmm. um, I think I was just so happy of being alive. Gratitude. Uh, yeah, I, I've never, I, I used to be able to put myself right back into the moment of, uh, of impact, really. And I, and I can still do it now, but not with the same amount of clarity because mm -hmm. of the time. Yeah. Uh, that between now and then you forget bits, but I used to be able to go right back and hear all the sounds and everything, and, and could dip in and out of it without having any problems or, you know. Any feelings towards yeah, it? Yeah, it, it, it's, it's strange. But yeah, I never, never really had. You had moments, obviously, mainly when you take your leg off and sit down in a chair and you, go, and you see the remote control on the other side yeah. of the room. You're like, oh no! <laughs> you have to put your leg on again to go. Yeah, you know, there's, there's all kinds of things that you know, little minor. Yeah. Bits and pieces. That's why it pays to have little kids. Yours are growing up now. Yeah. Mine still run around grabbing the remote for me. But you know, it is what it is, Mark. Yeah. You know, I'm a single below me amputee. Mm -hmm. And if if you're going to sustain a life changing injury, dare I say, this is the one time. Right, right. <laughs> you know, I wake up in the morning, I haven't got a leg. So I put one on. Yeah. At a very, very basic level, that's me sorted, mm -hmm. you know? Yeah. Now, I would love to, to delve into rehab and recovery and all that kind of stuff, but what I'd rather talk about um, during the, the last part of this is after medical discharge or during that process, some of the crazy stuff you've done, mate. Um, because we were talking about this before we went on and started recording some of the things you've got planned for the future, which I'd like to touch on. But just tell us a little bit about uh, the roles uh, and all those events you've done raising money for charity, raising awareness, and dropping your hashtag. Your hashtag you use, not define my disability. You know, tell us about all that. Well, that, that sort of came from um, my personal journey, I suppose. And it, and it is an intensely personal thing too, and, it, and it's given me a little bit of a mission in life, dare I say. 
Um, and that's when I woke up in hospital the night before. I got. I worked undercover in, at the time, the most dangerous place on God's earth. Mm-hmm. Um, and, the, and the level of training to get you a person to, to a position where they can operate in those environments, it's really intense. And I felt, when I looked in the mirror, you know, I was proud of the person that looked back. Mm-hmm. And I was someone who defined what they could do by physicality. I, I defined myself as a Royal Marine, mm-hmm. but I, I define myself by as a person who I felt that there was nothing that life could throw at me, no challenge that I wouldn't be the equal of. Mm-hmm. Arrogance, um, maybe, but Confidence. that's not the point. It's that's the person I thought I was, mm-hmm. and I thought that person had gone forever, and I'd have to redefine who I was, but within the realms of disability. Mm-hmm. And I thought if I'm going to be a disabled person, I'm going to be the best disabled person I can be. And then um, at the end of my first year, as a uh, amputee, I, I got an opportunity to become part of an all amputee crew to row an ocean, mm-hmm. uh, which we did do. We, we set off in um, uh, December 2015 and rowed across the Atlantic from the Canaries to uh, the Caribbean. And we got a Guinness World Record, the world's first all amputee crew of four to row an ocean. Mm-hmm. But more important than that is. I realised kind of halfway across, about three quarters of the way across, that I'm still the same person, that I needn't have tried to redefine who I was, mm-hmm. because I, I, you know, there's a little bit less of me. Mm-hmm. And I can't emphasise how important it was for me to rediscover that sense of self. It's something that, unless you've lost, you can't really understand how important it is to your life. It's something that we all, everyone takes for granted. It's mm-hmm. that thing that's you. Yeah. And if you've lost it, it's a massive hole in your life. Um, but more more than that, it got me thinking about, um, you know, I, I felt I had to define myself by disability because I was now disabled. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I wasn't the person I was. But that made me think about how we as a society define disabled people, and we do tend to define people who are disabled by that disability. Yeah, I agree. And it's such a silly thing to do. No one else is defined by something they're not good at. I'm never going to win the 400 metre hurdles. Right. But I've now got four Guinness World Records. Uh You know, so, alright, I am disabled. I'm not saying I'm not disabled. But I can do so much more. But I'm not very good. I'm never going to be good at running and jumping over things because yeah. I've only got one leg. Right. But no one else is defined by that dis- by what they can't do. No yeah. one else is. Uh, do you know Steve? You know Steve. Steve was never likely to be an astronaut. You know, no right. one else is defined by something they can't do, unless you're disabled, and then it does tend to define you. And that's where I got the idea for me second run, the, the, the rowing marine, uh, where I thought. I had the experience of rowing, mm-hmm. um, so I knew I could do it. Um, I got the sponsorship together and, and put the whole project together, and, I, uh, and and the and the reason behind it, uh, actually first and foremost, was to keep wounded and injured servicemen in the nation's conscience. The further we get away from the conflicts, unless it's in the news, the less people care. More people forget. And. Uh, we're both intimately connected with the Royal Marines charity. We mm-hmm. both see what they do 
not just um, for wounded Royal Marines, but the family as well, and it and it enables guys and, and, and girls and families and kids. Um, it allows those people who've had their lives shattered in our service, and I don't count myself as one of them. I I wasn't injured in service. Well, you were technically. No, but I wasn't injured doing that job. Right. But people who were mm -hmm. and are. I, I absolutely passionately believe that we as a society, we owe them a life of dignity. Mm -hmm. Nothing more, mm -hmm. a life of dignity. Not just now or then, when it was in the news, but yeah. for the rest of their lives, because they'll need that support for the rest of their lives. Yeah. And, that, and I felt that if I could do something that would keep wounded injured, yeah, it would keep it, like, building on kind of what Invictus does. Invictus does it on such a mm -hmm. much bigger bigger stage and a, and, a, and a much bigger level but if I could help that was the main driving force behind it but also what I wanted to do was prove that no one should be defined by their disability mm -hmm. and I thought if there, there was an able bodied record for um, I could get a world record for being the first physically disabled person to row solo and unsupported from mainland Europe to mainland South America okay but I also saw there was a record that was set in 2002. Actually, only three people have ever done it in history. It's quite a difficult one. Mm -hmm. And um, I thought the record was, the able-bodied record was 96 days, 12 hours and 45 minutes. I thought that was beatable. And I thought if, a, if I, as a disabled person, could beat an able-bodied record, something, yeah, something that's physically demanding yeah. as rowing an ocean, I thought that would send a massive statement out that no one yeah. should be defined by disability. And that was more of a kind of a personal mission for me um, because of the way I defined myself by disability at the start. Mm -hmm. uh, so that's that's what I set out to do and ultimately done it. <laughs> so, you know, we, we talked that you talked a lot in the beginning about failing this and failing that. You know, it's, it's not. I don't define anything as failure as long as you learn from it. You've had a, a very successful career. You've hit a lot of road bumps on the way. Um, and we don't have to go into much detail if, if you don't want to, but I know from reading and again from, from being your friend that there was a, a road bump, that's not the right way to describe it, but an incident when you were due to set off which delayed the oh, yeah, solar road yeah. the first time. Yeah, I, I, you know, I. Um I got there, got to the start line, and then three days before I was due to set off, uh, unfortunately, my mother died, um, postponed the road um, by a year, and was set and tried again in December last year. You have to row the ocean in um, winter because it's out of hurricane season. Oh, okay. So hurricanes are less likely. Um, actually, the first row, I say hurricanes are less likely, we, we were hit by Hurricane Alex. And that was the first hurricane in January in the Atlantic for 78 years. Really? <laughs> yeah, that, you rode the storm? That's how genuinely unlucky I am. Wow. <laughs> anyway, so yeah, so I postponed it in December, uh, went back out there and just sat and looked out at the sea, waiting for the weather to change, and it didn't. And then I finally got off in, um, uh, in January, January the 9th. I set off from, I was hoping to leave from Gibraltar, but was no weather window and I couldn't delay it anymore but there was a weather window from Portugal doesn't change the the actual um, 
Club record by Self from Portugal and got across. And even then, I, you know, it was, it was a series of failures. I've got, got the complete navigation system failed. And, and if you look at, and um, when I talk about failure, it's, I've, I've got a philosophy really, uh, that, that if you've got time, I'd like, you know, come yeah, on yeah. to you. But if you look at my role, I've got, I've got three Guinness World Records. I beat the able-bodied record mm-hmm. by 36 days, you know, yeah. over a month, I took yeah. off the record. And, and that mission in keeping wounded injured service people, especially, you know, particularly Royal Marines, because I'm a, I am a Royal Marine, keeping them in the nation's conscience and also getting the message out of not defined by disability. That day that we came in, it was in 20, the main news, in 27 countries. Really? It was it, it was the main news in the UK here. Mm-hmm. I know it, that. It got, it, it done everything I wanted it to do and mm-hmm. more. But if that's, that's just one small part of it at the end. If you look at the row as a whole, it's disaster after disaster, yeah. after failure, yeah. after failure, after failure, after failure, after failure, tiny bit of success. So if you take the whole thing yeah. and, and work out what percentage of that mm-hmm. is success? It's overwhelmingly the whole process is overwhelmingly a big disaster. Yeah. It's just the end bit, <laughs> but that's the only bit that matters. That, that's that's what a lot of things are, though. I mean, I'm probably going to get this wrong, but the, was Edison who invented the light bulb? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. You know how many how many times that guy failed? Over a thousand. Well, he failed over a thousand times, and then he had what you call that little bit of success. Where would we be about that success? Well, this is. One f- and you, you would have experienced this as well, absolutely known you have as well through our friendship and talking, that when you lose a leg or a limb or a part of you, for some reason that qualifies you to give out certificates at school. So <laughs> <laughs> you yes. have no idea why. Yeah, I know that. <laughs> but it does. Yeah. And it puzzled me at first. And T-shirts, what, and you get loads of free T-shirts, don't you? Yeah, and wristbands. Yeah, and wristbands and T-shirts. And... Um, I got, I, got, uh, I got asked to go to schools and, and I was giving out these certificates and over and over again, all I heard was teachers banging on about success. You're gonna be a success at this, you're gonna do this. It's gonna be amazing successes. And I, they kept bugging me because I kept thinking, no. To the pupils I, you mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Overwhelmingly, life's a disaster. <laughs> oh, okay. With those little tiny little successes. successes. And it's it's actually, there's, there's a quote that's wrongly attributed to Churchill. Mm-hmm. I don't believe he said this, but people say that he, he was. Mm-hmm. Right, this wrong quote is still amazing. Is success is navigating from failure to failure with mm-hmm. enthusiasm. Yeah, and I I, I started um, being asked to talk in schools and talk to students, and and it sort of developed. Um, up about two years ago it kind of finalised itself and I've been doing it now for a good couple of years where I talk about failure I start off and I say to the kids right I'm going I'm to tell you about something now that I it, it, it's the one thing that connects us all you me them everybody but you know the teachers and me your parents every one of us every one of us will fail and then I tell them my story mm-hmm. And then I go back and I point out the failures. I say, right, what's that to do with failures? And, and I point out all the failures all the way along. And I say, you're gonna fail in life. You're gonna fail because life happens to you, mm-hmm. like life happened to me. 
you're going to fail because life happens to someone you love like it happened to my mother you're going to fail because you didn't prepare well enough you're going to fail because you just made an honest mistake but you will fail and, and the trick is is to pick yourself up and go again that's and if you can master that you can master anything mm -hmm. and and my my belief my philosophy on life is this really and it's the message it's the core message and it's that we're kind of conditioned into thinking of success and failure as being polar opposites I believe that they are so entwined with each other that it's impossible to succeed without failing. No, I agree completely. Of course, it is. And and my f and the trick is to have a dream. Mm -hmm. Okay, so one thing like when I fell, when I when I went to that bloke in the in the careers fair, said I want to be a long way, and he said that's the mm -hmm. sort of bloke we're looking for. I've never lost that dream, Mark. Mm. I always wanted to be a Royal Marine and when I went back to the careers office and I went, no, nah, not you. Mm -hmm. I still never lost that dream and that, that's the trick. If you can keep alive your dream, it's so important mm -hmm. to, to, to have that dream. So the, the, the phrase I use is dare to dream mm -hmm. and if you don't fail, you ain't dreaming hard enough. Get a bigger dream. Have a dream so outrageous that you're guaranteed to fail the first time that you attempt it. And, and, the, and, the, and the thing is with kids nowadays is that life is so much about success. They put their, pick their phones up and all they get on Instagram and yeah. Facebook mm -hmm. and uh, Twitter and probably a load of other social media platforms that I don't even know exist. They're, they're just getting, look at, my, look at my successful life, look at my wonderful car my parents have got look at, right. look at my great house look at the, no one ever puts normal life down but a lot, a lot of that's fake and this is the problem and this is why it's great what you do when you go into the schools and you tell them about this because this generation they, they're, they're brought up and weaned on all the you know reality TV and, and fake Instagram celebrities and stuff stood next to this car oh, you know I work one hour a week and this is what I've achieved and they almost I think you know being a father of three think that they're entitled to success and they should get it in an instant. They don't learn, like you say, about failures or what it takes or being resilient or getting up and dusting yourself off. I agree with you 100%. And, and, it's, and it's the dealing with, well, why isn't this happening for me? Right. Am I not a worthwhile person? Mm -hmm. I, you know, and it starts, you start feeding in all those feelings. And I, I the crux of what I do, really, now is talking in schools mm -hmm. going and, and, and spreading this message and the reason I do it is you see you see a kind of look in the kids faces where they go oh yeah and, and they, they don't they're no, no one's ever told them mm. that it's okay to fail not only is it okay to fail you've got to yeah. you can't go through life Achieve. You can go through life never failing if you never attempt anything worthwhile. And what also, life's that? I know, I know, it's a sheltered one. But also, I, 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 this is my personal opinion, children nowadays think adversity is not being able to get a Wi-Fi signal. 
But when you stand up in front of them with one prosthetic leg and one severely injured leg, and you tell them your stories, it kind of puts things in perspective. And they think, oh, actually, the fact that I didn't get a Wi-Fi signal isn't that big a deal yeah. because look what this man's gone through and look what he's done and look what he's teaching us and telling us. And You know, it, it's there needs to be more of them, mate. More, more guys like yourself going to schools and teaching this to the next generation. And here too, here at Limston, with the injured recruits and the guys that are down and they think they're never going to make it and they haven't developed that resilience yet getting in there and saying, look lads, you know, this is a, like you say, this is one of your micro failures that leads to macro success. You know, you just got to be resilient with it. Yeah, and it, it is hard, you know, because it, that's their reality. Mm -hmm. When you're feeling like that, that's your reality, mm -hmm. you know, and, and, and it does take, uh, it takes an enormous amount of, uh, mental gymnastics sometimes to get a grip of yourself and get yourself out of feeling that way it's not easy and but it can be done and and, and uh okay it it's with, with with kids in schools and this is how it came about it was the stark contrast of what the teachers are telling them mm -hmm. and reality and what life is like you're going to be such a great success you're going to be amazing your lives you're building now a success and I, I, what I also do as well is I do a follow on session so I, um, I do like a, a as big a group as I can and tell my story and talk about failure and then straight after I have like a follow on session with the naughty children or yeah. you know um, those with challenging behaviour and one thing that you see with them and he, he, every single one of them is I start saying to them I say look you know why are you here? And they all look round and they're like, yeah, we're the naughty kids. They know. Mm -hmm. And I said, why are you here? And someone who isn't, there's always, you know, you'd have had them in your school, that the one or two kids that you know, every exam they're going to get like 99%, 100%. Mm -hmm. They're going to leave school with A stars and everything. Mm -hmm. Why aren't they naughty? Why are you naughty? And they're not. And you see, I'm thinking, well, I've never really thought about that. Yeah. And you tell them and say, look, there's no, there's nothing in school for you. What is the, why should you behave? Mm -hmm. Why should you behave in school? You, you're being tested in, in such a specific skill set, i.e. remembering stuff and being able to write it back down. Such a very specific skill. Mm -hmm. And it's actually almost irrelevant. In it's the, mega in outdated. The, yeah. Mm -hmm. But if you're not particularly good at that, then what is in, in school for you? What is the point of school for you? Right. Why should I, as an adult, or your teachers tell you should be behaving yourself mm -hmm. and engaging with this and, fo and following all the rules, even though none of this is for you? Mm. You know, we've, we've even put you in a set called, you know, D or whatever it is. Mm -hmm. You know, we've already put you down there and said, yeah, you're not up there with them. You're not in this class with them. You know, we, we even segregate children mm. in their ability to do something, which is so outdated now. Yes. It's irrelevant. I think it's the old model where they used to, you know, work hard at school, get your grades, get this job, work your way up, work for 40 years, making this business loads of money. When you retire, thank you very much. Here's your gold watch. Enjoy your 20 years retirement. But that's that's our grandparents' generation. We weren't even that. It was it was more in my generation. 
might have mentioned that I'm old. For <laughs> <laughs> um, my generation, it was nothing other than a filter for those that were going to go on the shop floor mm-hmm. to those that were going to go out in the office. Right. It was nothing more than that. Mm-hmm. It was, you know, if you look at the amount of people who went to university from my school, my year, it's only one or two people. Because right. no one in Dagenham went to university. Mm-hmm. Only like the really unusually clever kids did. Mm-hmm. And they'd get a scholarship somewhere or something like that, you know. But the 99% of them weren't. The school was never based around a stepping stone for further education. Right. It wasn't even that good. It was nothing more than a filter between doing O-levels, which is what old people used to do, and CSEs, right? So you, had, you even had two different qualifications. You had O-levels, which were GCSEs. GCSEs, yeah. yeah. The equivalent of a GCSE mm-hmm. meant you could then take that further in education if you wanted to, but no one ever did. Only a very, very small proportion did. Or you had CSEs. Um, a certificate of secondary education, which is what fit kids done. Right. It was nothing other than, yeah, this this kid can knuckle down, he can read and write, and he can probably operate every machine. Mm. Not much else. It was nothing other uh, other than a, fi- a filter for that. And the education system, not schools. I'm, I I only see the schools where they can be bothered to step out of their comfort zone and actually get someone like me and you in mm-hmm. to inspire the kids. So we only see probably the better schools because they're the only ones that can, you know, will go out and, and, and do that and allocate time for that sort of thing. Or it's got teachers that are willing to put themselves out to get on the internet and find me or you and send us an email and say, will you? Mm-hmm. But the majority of schools, the, the whole education system is still geared up around that. Mm. And it's, it's so undated. In fact, if you was to sit down and think, let's come up with a way of absolutely ruining our kids' childhood. <laughs> that's it. That's it. There you <laughs> go. For no reason whatsoever, and, and try and make this as pointless as we, we'd be hard done to come up with a system mm. that they've got now. And and I mean, they started progressing towards you know qualifications were where your coursework actually went towards it. So if, right. you, if you could put in some hard work, mm-hmm. then, but then, you know, then they just turned around and went, nope, we're going to go back to the 1970s mm-hmm. chalkboards and and everything rests on one final exam. Yeah. What is the point in that? I yeah. mean, if you want to know anything, what do you do? Google. <laughs> Pick up my smartphone, speak to Alexa. It's, it's actually preparing children to get out there and be the entrepreneurs, to yeah. be the people who are making things, to be the engineers. Yeah. It's irrelevant. It's almost if like you, you hope your kids go through this nonsense without being messed up so too much. Mm-hmm. So that they then can start learning and preparing mm-hmm. for life at work and, mm-hmm. and, and actually, you know, contributing to society. You you almost it's it's almost well it isn't almost, it's like Education, the education system we've got, is a hindrance to doing that. Right, right. This is complete nonsense. Yeah. No, I hear you, man. I hear you. But it's great what you do. You know, you go in there and you you tell them your story, give them a perspective, teach them some of some of your lessons. Before we wrap up, what's next? Oh yeah, the physical um, challenges. I mean, yeah, what we, what we yeah. Do. It's 
the, the, I've been asked to be part of a thing called uh, Forces for Nature, which is an Amazonian kayak. Um, it's good friends that um, some guys that we know as well mm -hmm. um, uh, on that. Uh, so it would be kayaking the entire length of the Amazon okay. uh, River, which would be amazing. That's August 2020, so August next year. Okay. And I'm now working on a project for myself, uh, which will be the year after, which will be uh, August 2021. And I'm calling it at the moment as a working title, the triathlon of Great Britain. Yep. So essentially it's a triathlon. Um, so the clock will start at the start of the swim and finish with the end of a run. Well, it, I say run, oh, I can't run. <laughs> It'll be a hobble hang, at, at hang, on, hang on, before you go on, what is the swim? Because we yeah. talked about this before we started recording, yeah. so let's let everyone know what the swim, the actual stage of this triathlon are. Okay, so the clock will start as soon as I get in the uh, in the water at Dover, okay. and I shall swim the channel, yeah. and then get as to uh, Land's End as quickly as I can to then cycle straight away from Land's End to John O'Groves, but taking in both uh, Snowden and Scarfield Pike, mm -hmm. and then get as quickly as I can down from uh, John O'Groves to uh, Fort William, and do a marathon over Ben Nevis, uh, finishing at Speenbridge Memorial. So you've got the uh, swim, bike, ride elements, but all together, um, it will be a thousand miles, and I hope to do it in ten days or less. That's insane, mate. And you, like, again, we talked about this before. You've picked three iconic, you know, British events. You know, swim the Channel, John uh, John O'Groats to Land's End on the bike, three highest peaks, and then finish at the Speenbridge Memorial. You know, as a Royal Marine, that's you know one of the best places that you can do that. Yeah, um, you know, it's uh, it's a long way off. There was a lot of training between now and then. Yeah. So when did you have the idea for the triathlon? Um, I, I actually, I was in intensive care straight after um, the accident, so okay. we'd been in the first uh, five days. I remember the surgeon coming down, the woman who um, took off my leg, she came down to check up on it, and uh, I asked her, I said, will I be able to run a marathon in a year? And uh, she was like, yeah, yeah, of course you will, of course you will, actually. Mm. I, because of the injuries to my left leg, I can't run. Yeah. And uh, so the 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 walking elements of it, i.e. going up the uh, the three peaks, and the last bit, like the marathon bit, that will that will push me to the to the very limits of what's possible mm -hmm. for me. So that'll be that'll be really difficult. Yeah. But you're looking forward to it. I am. Yeah. Yeah. Just another another massive mountain, excuse the pun, uh, <laughs> to climb and overcome. And I'm, and I'm sure, mate, you know, like everything else you've done, you'll smash it. It's it's. Um, you've heard me talking about schools, and, and and I hope it comes across how genuinely passionate I am about mm -hmm. that. And I am, but doing dull things like running the Atlantic, like doing the, the triathlon of Great Britain, if it ends up being called that, mm -hmm. it gives you the uh, legitimacy, I think, to stand up. It's the doorway to, to that opens, that allows you to stand up in front of mm -hmm. uh, a, a group of children and then listen to you. Yeah. Um, and it also, uh, well, I was coming to the end of my career and I extended. 
and I didn't go outside, I thought I'd stay in for a little bit longer. So I thought about and considered quite, um, you know, quite uh, deeply about going outside and I thought the thing that I'm going to miss absolutely is going to be the laugh, the jokes, the lads, the way of life. And it isn't the thing that I miss is doing something that matters, mm -hmm. doing something that, that genuinely has a purpose. And we all make light of it and, and none of us take it seriously whilst we're serving. But it is what we do, mm -hmm. what we've done, mattered. Mm -hmm. No, I agree with you. And this allows me to continue to matter, I suppose. Yeah. Gives you that, that sense of purpose and that drive. It does, and everything I, I do, bearing that in mind, everything I do has to be for the right reasons now. So it's kind of a, a mantra that I take through forward in what I do what is the purpose of me doing this why am I doing it and if and if it's for the right reason then um, it gives it that legitimacy for myself mm -hmm. which is really important but also I'm a great believer that if, if people do things for that, that not necessarily for the right reasons they're doing it for their self for their profile or for whatever you know they tend to kind of fall apart a little bit. Those things never have longevity. No. If you if you got a strong enough reason why you're doing something, when it gets tough, as I'm sure you experienced on the on the road, you know that's what drags you out of that pit. Remembering why you started in the first place and what you're doing to find it. If it is legitimate, then it will drag you out. But like you say, if you're doing it because you want people to tell you you're great or build your profile and you, you don't really strongly, passionately believe it in your core, then most people will just quit and give up. Yeah, absolutely. Lee, thank you, mate, for being the first guest on the I'm podcast. Absolutely honoured, man. Really um, cheers, mate. I wish you all the best with everything we all do, mate, here at the charity. And hopefully, you know, when you're doing these other challenges, either before, maybe during, or, or certainly after, we can we can check back in and record another episode and let everyone know you're gone. Absolutely, that'd be perfect. Mate, yeah. thank you. Cheers, buddy. Thank you. Appreciate it. Cheers, mate. <laughs>